0: You know, recently the Washington Post published a piece entitled "America Really Is More Divided Than Ever," and the piece was built about built around a study that Pew Research had done on the climate, uh, the political climate in our country. And what they found was, you have to go back to the Civil War to find a time where our nation was more divided than it is today, and. I think many of us, we feel this division, don't we? I mean, politics, it used to be something that was a a touchy subject. It used to be something you wanted to be careful with. Now it's an explosive subject. Even as I'm talking, some of you, you can feel it rising, right? You're grabbing your seat. What's he going to say next? Who's he going to endorse? No one. Um, In the Pew Research study, though, I do want to share this with you. They said... uh, in the study, they, they asked, you know, Republicans and Democrats different questions. 50% of Republicans said that Democrats make them afraid. And 50% of Democrats said that Republicans make them afraid. 41% of Democrats view Republicans as a threat to the nation, while 45% of Republicans view Democrats as a threat to, a, to our nation. And so you can see these... The the division is not just we disagree respectfully about the best way that we as the people should govern our society. The disagreements go to the place of fear and anger and threats. You know, they, they feel threatened. We feel threatened by people who disagree with us politically. And so the question that I've been asking, the question that a lot of people in our country are asking is why? Like, why is the divide so bad right now? Why are why is there so much polarization? And I think one of the culprits is 24-hour news cycles. And so it's always before us at a level that it's never been before. Another culprit is social media, which creates ideological echo chambers where you just follow uh, and like everyone who thinks exactly like you. And if you don't like the person, then you just... Unfriend them or mute them, and so you're constantly just hearing people who say things that you agree with. But I actually think the reason that there's so much contention, uh, it's deeper even than that. You know, we we as a nation we've come so far. We as a people have come so far. Think of all the advances we've made in science and technology and medicine. Think of how different our life is today than it was just 20 years ago. And yet in spite of all of these advances in science, in technology, in medicine, our world's just as big of a mess as it's ever been, if not a bigger mess in many ways. 20,000 people die every day for uh, malnutrition. 20,000 people every day. NASA, within 20 years, is planning to put human beings on Mars, and yet 30,000 kids die every day of preventable diseases. 30,000 kids die every day. of That's 20 kids a minute. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be going to Mars. I think that's incredible. But I do think that we we, we have a sense, maybe we've never articulated it, that if we can send people to Mars, why can't we solve the most basic problems on this Earth, right? if we can send people to Mars, why can't we fix things like world hunger? Why can't we make sure that vaccinations get out? Why can't we solve things like healthcare or the economy? Richard Lovelace writes that one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a righteous government. The poor and the disadvantaged contend against the system with the conviction that another economic order will make the world livable. Every four years, The American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. Economic downturns, crop failures, moral declines, and worsening international conditions are all blamed on presidents who, in most cases, have little control over events. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all of its wounds. And I think one of the reasons our politics are so contentious right now is because of what Lovelace said, exactly what he said. We have this inarticulate conviction, this groping, that if we could just, we're feeling around in the dark, if we could just get the right leader, we could finally make progress, we could finally solve all of these problems that plague us year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. Well, today's Palm Sunday As you know, it's the day the church set aside to celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the claim of Palm Sunday, the claim of Jesus's triumphal entry, is that Jesus is that king that we've all so desperately longed for. That Jesus is that righteous ruler, that righteous government that sits at the bottom of our desires. And so this morning, we're going to look at Luke's account of the triumphal entry and we're going to see what, what we can learn about the kingship of Jesus Christ. And I'd ask if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at Luke 19, verses 29 to 40. Just a little context. Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem Uh, And that's where we pick up the text in verse 29. Luke tells us, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There are there are three aspects of Jesus's, of the, the kingly nature of Jesus that I want to show you from this text. One, this text shows us that Jesus is the king who confronts. Two, he's the king who confounds. And then three, he's the king who heals. Uh, but you can't understand the healing he brings until you've first been confronted and actually, I think, confounded by him. So we're going to start with, with the King Who Confronts. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't know about you. I didn't grow up in the church, so I never got to do the palm branch thing. I feel like I missed out. And I said that in the first service, and I had like five people come and bring me palm branches uh, to heal childhood wounds. But um, I've always pictured the triumphal entry as a sort of like spontaneous thing that Jesus is going into Jerusalem and this crowd shows up and they start cheering and he kind of gets swept up in the moment and he's like, oh, shucks, you guys are too much. Throw me on that donkey, that's fine. Like, let's go. But what Luke shows us here is that this wasn't some spontaneous affair. Jesus' triumphal entry, it was deliberate and it was planned by him. Bethphage and Bethany, they were... Two villages right next to each other. They were the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, close friends of Jesus. Jesus had spent a lot of time there, and he knew the place well. One of the things that that has, you know, people have argued about over the years is this whole thing about when Jesus says, Go get the colt. And that colt, it's a hard word to translate. It's probably a donkey. That's what most people think. He says, go get the donkey. And people are like, how did he know where the donkey was going to be? And some people says, well, that shows the sovereign wisdom of Jesus, which maybe it does, or maybe it just shows that Jesus paid attention when he was in the village, you know, and spent weeks there, and said, I know if you hang a right here, that guy's got four different donkeys; he can spare one of them. Furthermore, it's in Bethany and Bethphage, or it's in Bethany where Jesus performs one of his greatest miracles. Bethany is where he raised Lazarus from the grave. And when he raised Lazarus from the grave, there were a bunch of witnesses. And the people who witnessed that, they had a good sense of not just Jesus' power, but of his identity, of who he was. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to go and get the coal, the Lord needs it, what he's doing is, I think what he's doing is he's telling his disciples, go tell the crowd that I'm on the move and then I'm going to be riding this donkey. And sending for the donkey, Jesus was actually sending for a crowd, which is why when Jesus gets on the donkey, there's already a crowd there ready and waiting. Well, why did I share all that with you? Because I want you to see that this wasn't just happenstance. Jesus was orchestrating this. He was planning it. Now, what makes this particularly interesting is for three years, Jesus has been trying to avoid the spotlight. I mean, if you've read the Gospels, you know when Jesus performs miracles, when he heals people, when he casts out demon demons, he's always saying to people, hey, don't don't tell anyone about what you've seen. Hey, keep quiet. Go show yourself to the priest, but don't, don't let anyone know else know what I've done. For three years, Jesus, he's essentially been operating in the shadows, in the margins, on the fringes. And the reason why, the reason he's been on the margins and the fringes, the reason he, he's been trying to keep people quiet is because he knows that the more word spreads about him, the more the authorities would take notice and the more they would feel threatened and the greater their temptation to silence him. John in John 11, he tells us that word of Jesus's miracles had gotten back to the religious establishment in Jerusalem and that they had put a price on his head at this point and they were planning to assassinate him. And so the big question is, all of this going on, why in the world would Jesus make such a big deal of his arrival in Jerusalem? You know, why not sneak in the side door or slip in secretly under the cover of darkness? And the answer, Jesus, his hour had come. The time for his great confrontation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem was at hand. And when Jesus enters Jerusalem, riding down Main Street, essentially, with all the pomp and circumstance of of a king, with people hailing him as king, which is why the, the Pharisees are like, Jesus, tell your disciples it's not cool for them to worship you as king. When Jesus does this, what is he doing? Well, he's forcing the hands of the religious establishment. He's forcing the issue of his identity with them. You see, up to this point, the religious establishment, they could kind of ignore Jesus. And I think they probably were hoping, you know, we've seen a lot of people who do a lot of cool things. They're probably kind of hoping that, well, he's got 15 minutes of fame and that'll soon pass. And as soon as that passes, uh, we won't have to deal with him anymore. But when Jesus rolls into town on the donkey with everything going on, they realize, oh, this is an issue we actually have to deal with they're being confronted with Jesus's identity. He's forcing their hand and really what he's forcing on them is he's saying, listen, you can either crown me as the king that I am or you can kill me. What you can't do is ignore me or like me. And what Jesus does with the religious authorities here, I submit to you he does with anyone who seriously considers his claims. Jesus, he's a king, but he's a king who will confront you and he will confront you with claims about himself because Jesus Christ claims to be king and not just a king, he claims to be the king, the long-awaited king, the king over everything, the king over the cosmos. Jesus Christ claims absolute authority over everything. Jesus Christ claims absolute authority and sovereignty over you. And that's a staggering claim coming from a guy, coming from a human being. And you have to do something with it. And you can either worship him for the king that he is, or you can write him off as a fanatic, a wingnut, who made outrageous claims and ended up getting what he deserved. The one thing you can't do with any intellectual integrity is fall somewhere in the middle. The one thing you can't do is say, Jesus was a pretty good guy. No, he claimed to be king. He claimed to be God. It's either true or it's false, but he's not a good guy. We have this real problem in our culture where people, they want to pick and choose when it comes to Jesus. You know, our our culture loves the Jesus who cares for the poor, but we don't love a Jesus who confronts us individually. We love Jesus who's a voice for the oppressed, We don't always love it when Jesus speaks into our life and says difficult things or hard things. One of the things that I hear as a pastor from time to time, I hear people say things like, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And I kind of want to respond, me too, a lot of the time. Uh, Just joking. That was a joke. Uh, They'll say, I like Jesus. I don't really like the church. And I I don't, I I want to be really clear. I don't want to admit dismiss the church or the hurt that the church can bring in people's lives. I've witnessed it. Some of my deepest regrets as a pastor are how I've hurt people and seen how hurtful that can be. But I think so often when people say things like, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the church, I think it's just a smoke screen. You know, and I want to say, I don't say this because I'm a pastor and I don't want to hurt people because pastors are supposed to be nice people. But when people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, I always want to respond, really? Really, you like Jesus? The one who claims absolute authority over your life. The one who claims absolute authority over your time. The one who looks at your money and he says, that belongs to me. The one who looks at your sexuality and says, that belongs to me and you are to steward it in the ways that I created you to steward it. You really like that, Jesus? No, most people, when they say that, what they mean is they like people with long hair who wear sandals and say pithy things. (sighs) Jesus Christ, he makes staggering claims. He claims to be the king. He claims absolute authority. What he's saying in this text to the leaders, what he's saying to you and to me is, I don't want you to just like me. I don't want you to just admire me. I don't want you to just pop into church every couple of times, you know, a couple of times a month to check a box of religious performance. What I want from you is for you to bow down and worship me as your king and for you to submit your entire life to me. That's what he's saying. And that's why controversy surrounded him 2,000 years ago. And that's why controversy still surrounds his name to this day. Because we have a man claiming to be the absolute, total, final, true king. And you can either bow down before him or you can reject him. The one thing you can't do is dabble in him. You can't just kind of like him. He's a controversial king. He's also a confounding king. What I mean is as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, the crowds, they start to go wild. Luke tells us in verse 36, uh, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud, loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They screamed, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And so while he's riding this donkey, people are flipping out. Remember this miracle? Yeah, that was awesome. Remember when he raised Lazarus? Yeah, that was awesome. And then he did the thing with the bread, and then he walked. And they're like, he's the one. He's the one. Blessed is the king, they say. We learned from the other gospel writers that they were waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna. Now, palm branches, I had to look this up, but palm branches were actually the national symbol. They were a national symbol for victory. And liberation. There's something you would wave after a great victory. So about 200 years before this, Simon Maccabee, he defeated foreign armies uh, and kept Israel independent. He basically saved the nation. And when he came riding back in to Jerusalem, people were waving palm leaves in celebration, saying, you've delivered us. You're our victor. You're our great warrior. Additionally, the word Hosanna, you know, we, we sing, and I don't know if we, we know what it means, but Hosanna means very simply, save us, please. Save us now. And so when you add all of these things together, you put them all together, the picture of what's happening here starts to become clear. They were praising Jesus as their great deliverer. They're so excited because they're convinced that Jesus is going to be the one who's going to deliver them from the Roman oppression. Jesus is going to be the one that finally takes the yoke off their back of the crazy high taxes, the military presence that they experience day in and day out. And this is why they're screaming and shouting and celebrating and they're elated because finally Jesus is going to, you know, to drive the Romans out and to set us free. But there's one problem, right? If Jesus' plan was to overthrow Rome, he would have been riding a war horse or a stallion flanked by an army. Jesus, he's riding a donkey flanked by a few unschooled, untrained disciples. He's not a threat to Rome. He's not a threat to anyone. I mean, when you see someone riding on a donkey, it's not intimidating, is it? You're not threatened, oh no, don't hurt me. No, you see someone riding on a donkey, you feel sympathy. Donkeys are beasts of burden. Donkeys are animals of servants. And yet here's Jesus being hailed as king, riding on this lowly donkey. What kind of king is this? It's confusing. It's confounding. What kind of king rides a donkey? Well, you got to know what he's riding that donkey to. He's not riding that donkey on his way to a throne. He's riding on the way to the cross. He's not going to be adorned with a crown of gold. He's going to be adorned with a crown of thorns. I mean, Jesus really is the true and great deliverer. But he's coming. He's coming to deliver his people and to save, not by taking power and killing, but by losing power and dying. You know, if he came riding on a stallion, it'd be a symbol of a, a brute force. You know, on a war horse, it, it would be a symbol of one who's gonna come and and tread down his enemies. But Jesus, in riding a donkey, he's come to declare that he's come to carry our burdens. That he's become, he's come to become a beast of burden, to carry our sins and take them on himself. And this confused people back then and it confused, confuses people today. It's why back then in less than a week, he goes from having crowds cheering, blessed is the king who comes to six days later, five days later, there's another crowd chanting, crucify him. And they ask for Barabbas to be released. Now, Barabbas he was the kind of revolutionary people wanted. He was the kind, when we think revolutionary, when we think deliverer or a liberator, Barabbas is the kind of guy we think of. He's the guy who gets stuff done. He was an insurrectionist. He, along with some, some other Jews, they, they mounted a rebellion against Rome. And of course it, it failed, but he was still somewhat of a, a, a hero in town. And when the people said, what do we really want? The king on the donkey? The king who refuses to wield a sword or a Barabbas? Man, give us Barabbas all day, every day, because that's the way we are. See, they they wanted, and I would say we want a king, a judge who will bring judgment, but Jesus came to bear judgment. He didn't come to bring it, he came to bear it. Jesus, he's the king we need, but he's not not necessarily the king that we, That we want. Certainly not the king that they wanted. One writer says this. He says, Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch between what we want from God and what he provides. I want to read that again. Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch between what we want from God and what he provides. You know, God rarely gives us what we want because what we want is so often, almost always, it's shallow and superficial compared with what we need. What we want from God, it's so often shallow and superficial compared to what we actually need. What did these people want? They wanted to be liberated from Rome and there's nothing wrong with that. There's an awful lot that's very right with that. But let me ask you, If Jesus did that, if he did mount up an army and he rolled into Jerusalem and he drove the Romans out and then that army went all the way to Rome and they killed the Caesar, they killed everyone, they took control and they became the ruling dominion, the ruling dynasty in the world, what would happen? Would everything flourish and be great? Of course not. If if Jesus only freed them from their oppression, it'd be a matter of years before they became the oppressors. Why? Because that's the way people are. Because that's what sin does. If Jesus liberates people from political oppression without dealing with the source of all oppression, which is sin, he's essentially just kicking the can down the field, just putting the problem off. So Jesus came to deal with the problem that is beneath all of our problems came to free us from our slavery to sin. And he's the king we, we need, but he, he isn't always the king we want. And the reason we don't really want this king is because talk radio, news TV, you know, the 24-hour news TV, social media, everything in our culture, everything inside of us, even our own hearts, we all tend to think that the problems in the world are all out there. And that for flourishing to happen, we just got to deal with that problem or that problem or that problem. But, and, and most of us are really confident about what the problems are and how they need to be dealt with. But we think all of the problems in the world are out there. But when Jesus mounts this donkey, what is he saying? He's saying, no, the real problem in the world is in here. It's in you. It's in me. It's in all of our hearts. It's sin. That's a word people are uncomfortable with in our day, but the Bible is very clear. When you ask what's wrong with the world, it's that sin has infected every human heart. And if Jesus goes and he tries to deal with some superficial things without getting to the root, man, just more weeds are gonna grow. And so he came to fix the big problem, the root problem that sits beneath all the problems. And I'll say, until you understand this, you'll be perpetually confused and frustrated with him. But as you understand this, man, it can bring you such hope and peace and contentment. When you realize, oh, Jesus is after the really big things, it can enable you to live with a certain level of peace when he doesn't give you what you ask for. Why? Because you know he's doing something else. You know he's not absent. And so you might ask him for things and, And he might be up there laughing like, yeah, that's really what you need. Like when my kids ask me at nine o'clock at night if they can have a bowl of ice cream. (laughs) Yeah, that's really what you need. No, you can go to bed. You know, how do my kids respond? The same way we respond when God doesn't answer our prayers. We get grouchy and we get grumpy. When you understand though, no, 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 he has a plan and he's dealing with the biggest of issues then it gives you this peace, this lack of anxiety, this ability to say, when you pray, not just demand, God, give me this now. God, I think this is best. And when he doesn't answer your prayers, you, instead of lashing out, you can say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to bring about in my life that wouldn't be brought about without this? He's a confounding king. And when you learn that, not only will he be able to understand the gospel, you will be able to understand his ways. So he's a king who confronts. He's a king who confounds. But lastly, most importantly, he's a king who heals. There's something strange in this text that I never really noticed before. Um, but in verse 30, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Now, I never noticed it, but this is really kind of strange. It, anyone here grow up on a farm? If you grow up on a farm, this should stick out to you right away. What happens if you try to get on a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden before? What's gonna happen that first time? They're gonna buck you, right? They're gonna throw you off. You can't just go around hopping on animals that have never been ridden before. You have to break them. That's the technical term. You have to break them. Yet Jesus climbs on this donkey. And not only does he climb on this donkey, he rides this donkey through this screaming crowd, this young donkey through this screaming crowd. And it doesn't buck him. It doesn't buckle under the pressure. It remains calm. D.A. Carson, who's, who's one of the most Noted Bible commentators in our day, he writes this. He says, in the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. Thus, the event points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. What's what's Carson saying here? Two things. One, he's saying Jesus didn't have to break this animal because this animal wasn't afraid of him. This animal knows his master. Even more, Jesus heals this animal of its fears because this foal is fearless in the midst of this screaming crowd. I mean, it's rolling with confidence and poise. Why? Because Jesus is in its saddle, literally. This, This foal is healed of its fears, because Jesus is in its saddle. I think there's a real word for us here. You know, when we hear Jesus saying, I wanna be your king, I want to have absolute authority in your life. I want you to submit to me. We think that sounds awful because we've witnessed what human kings and human rulers do to their subjects. The best of them aren't all that great, the worst of them are absolutely terrifying. We think if I'm gonna submit my life to someone else, they are going to coerce me, exploit me, abuse me, ride me into the ground and break me. And so when Jesus says, I wanna be your king, we think if I I do that, he's gonna coerce me, exploit me, ride me into the ground and break me. What we see here is, man, when you put yourself under the kingship of Jesus, He doesn't break you; He heals you. When you come under the lordship of Jesus, He doesn't break you. You know, Zechariah nine nine, which testifies to this whole thing. It talks about the donkey. It talks about the triumphal entry. It talks about Jesus too, and and it tells us that He is a gentle King, that He comes in gentleness. And in Jesus, we find healing, not breaking. You know, making a mistake, and this is something we've talked about so many times, so I'm not gonna go into it in depth right now, but we're all bowing down to and worshiping and serving something as king. It could be success, it could be money, pleasure, other people's approval, having a perfect family, making it in life. I don't know what it is for you, but we all have those things that we're giving our best to, saying, if I can have that, Life will be great. We have all those things that we're ordering our lives around. And all of those things, they're eventually going to break you. Because they weren't made to be king. Jesus is the only king who won't break you. He will heal you because he's the true king. He's the suffering king. He's the crucified king. He's the king on the donkey. You can trust him. The second thing, though, that Carson is saying, he says, thus the event points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. He's saying when Jesus gets on this animal and the animal under its ha- under his hands are calm, he's saying that's telling us something about Jesus's return. In verse 39 and 40, when the Pharisees say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, Jesus responds, I tell you, if they keep quiet, he says, the stones will cry out. Which you read that and you think that's kind of a cool phrase or that's like a a poetic expression, but this is more than a poetic expression. This picture of stones crying out, it is actually a, a prophetic word about what our world will be like when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, this world is gonna burst into everything that it was created to be. God created this world to be so much more than it is at present. Romans 8 says that creation, not just us, but all of creation, it's in slavery right now, to bondage, to decay. Paul also says in Romans 8 that creation is eagerly anticipating Jesus' return. The creation is on tiptoes, waiting for the rightful king to come back and put everything right. And on that day, it's not just going to be us who are singing. Rocks are going to be crying out. Isaiah 55, 12, we're told on that day, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I don't even know what that really means, but it's going to be amazing. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. What does it look like for mountains to tap dance and clap? Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them all. I love that picture. A wolf, a lamb, a leopard, a goat, and a child is leading them all along like they're his pets. Why? Because the earth will be full of, of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And just so you know, it's not just these two verses that I kind of cherry-picked and said, all right, let me find some cool verses that say funny things. No, go read the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms say it. Again, I think, go read Psalm 96, 97, 98, think 62. Go read the Psalms. Over and over again, they have these images of trees clapping of oceans roaring, of all of creation resounding at the thought of the king's return. And if rocks and trees and mountains are gonna sing and clap on that day, what what do you think we're gonna be doing? I don't know, but I know it's gonna be wonderful. And I know we're given these truths because these are the kind of truths we need to live off of. These are the kind of truths that, we, that sustain us. These promises, they should lead us to submit our lives to the true king today, even when they haven't fully been fulfilled, because we know what's coming. We talk about healing. I mean, think about that. Creation just celebrating because the rightful king's in place. We, we throughout human history, we felt that the challenge of a king, the paradox of a king, we all want a king. We desperately want a king. That's why we get so wrapped up in politics. we and I'm not saying it's not important, but maybe it's not that important. We we desperately want a king. And yet the kings always disappoint. The queens always disappoint. The Triumph entry says, Jesus is the king you long for. So as we come to the Lord's table, if you're here and you're a believer in Christ, I want to ask you what, Parts of your life, maybe, have you not brought under his authority and his lordship? Where are you walking in blatant disobedience to him? Where are you ignoring his call and his authority? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to give your life to the king who suffered for you, the king who's making all things new. And The word I want to hold before all of us is the remembrance that the healing he brought came because his body was broken. Five days after this event, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He was with his disciples and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. He's saying, I'm doing something new in your midst. It's the cup of my blood that's poured out for you. He says, as often as, as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that yes Jesus demands absolute authority from us but he's also given his very life for us and because he's done that we can come we can we can come with our brokenness with our sin with our heartache whatever you've got brewing in your life right now you can bring it to this table this table is a place where you can bring anything and some of you are angry with God you can bring your anger some of you are, are racked with guilt you can bring Bring your guilt before him. Some of you, you hear about Jesus being king and you have deep conviction because you know you have some serious things in your life that you're not addressing. But he's told you you got to address. I just want you to know you can bring anything to this table. It's a table of grace because our God is a God of grace. So if you've trusted in Christ, I encourage you to come to eat and to drink. Let me pray.